Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into God's presence. Thank you, Pastor Brenda, for those prayers. We certainly um, walk with God. God walks with us in this. This is a very um, stressful week, I know, for many of you and for our city. Um, our council met this week, and we, we dug into Psalm 46, where God says, He is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in our time of trouble. So we need not fear, and we remember God's invitation that we cast our cares upon him, that we can bring our fears to him. And though those things that we have looked for security, even those things fade, God does not fade. God is not shaken, and God is somebody we can hold on to and somebody that walks with us, church. I've been encouraged by um, people reaching out to those most impacted by COVID this week around our city and in our church. For those that might be new to community, um, 15% of everything that's given into the church, we redistribute out to our ministry partners and areas of need in the city. And we have been committed to, to doing that um, our entire time as a church. And also these past years, we've set aside money um, specifically for COVID. And we still have some of those monies that we are utilizing right now as Jubilee, one of our ministry partners, is an initiating getting food to those who um, do not have it, who might be homebound right now um, in the midst of COVID, as well as Feeding Hong Kong, another NGO that we work with. And so if that's something you want to give to, um, we welcome those donations as we redistribute them to those most impacted right now. So let's continue to lift up our city, um, everybody in the city that's impacted us and yourselves, um, as you might be walking with various fears and um, struggles right now, know that we're praying for you, church, family. I'm excited about these two weeks. We're going to shift gears a little bit. These two weeks are a little bit different than our normal sort of times of preaching. And so we are concluding our This Is Us series. And part of who we are as a community is we have always lifted up women in all places of leadership at community. And we know that that is not um, the Christian perspective that every believer around the world has. And so I thought it would be helpful if we can unpack why did we arrive at this position? So there is a Google Doc that has a quiz on it. And um, you can click the link for that um, and fill it out as we go. Um, after the sermon, after the service, the, the answers to that will be given. I took it this morning and I only missed one. So um, not bad. No, um, the whole notes will be available to you. And because there's a lot of content today um, that we're going to be walking through and we're not going to lift up and dig into every scripture that's referenced, but know that those scriptures are there in the notes. Part two will be next week. Um, I'll be interviewing Pastor Brenda for part of that time as well. And we'll also have a Zoom gathering after the services next week to um, kind of have a time of digging into this and answering questions you might have. We've received several questions so far, and so we'll be lifting up those things. All right, so let's dig in here. Okay, church, you ready? Let's dig in. So how do we interpret the Bible? This is important because as we remember, John Walton, the professor at Wheaton where I attended, gives us this truth. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. We are not the original audience to receive it. So what did this 
scripture? What did this book, these letters uh, mean to the original audience? That's where we have to start. And so when we look at scripture, first we need to know the big story. See, we, we read scripture with two lenses, a theological lens, who is God, right? What is our view of God? Because that impacts how we read scripture. We also read it with a cultural lens, And that could be the church that we grew up. That could be the part of the world that we grew up. It could be the community that we're in. And we have those two lenses that impact how we read scripture. And so we have to step back and say, what is this big story in God? And and Pastor Brenda talked a bit about the gospel last week. And so we see this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, this big arc of scripture. And that helps us to clue into how should we interpret passages. We know that God is love and love is a central part of who he is. It says it's his very essence, right? And we see it in Revelation that all things will be redeemed. And so this is really an opportunity for us to look at some of those theological um, implications to how we interpret scripture, okay? Next is what did it mean to the original audience? So again, we're having to try to unpack, and this is where we depend on scholars and scholarship to know the culture of the time, so that we can try to understand what it means for us in this time. And then what genre is it? What type of writing is it? Is it poetry? You know, is it poetic? Is there analogy? Is there metaphor, allegories? Is it a letter? Is it a narrative? Is it apocalyptic literature like Revelation and parts of Daniel? Because those help us to interpret scripture itself. Okay, and if you have additional questions or insights, do put them into the chat box as we go along today. It helps us to connect and have this conversation. It also allows us in this time of social distancing to not be so distant. So I love it when you put things into the the chat. And so do continue to do that. Okay, let's dig in. So patriarchy Okay, so male leadership, if you will. Um, This view, it's also complementarianism is another word for it, Um, says that men and women have different roles and gifts in the church and home and that men are to to be the leaders in both of those places. So this idea of patriarchy has been with us since the fall. Complementarianism, that that concept is really um, a stream of patriarchy, really emerged you know, starting in the late 70s and then 80s as a response to uh, feminism, as a response to, um, you know, what these conservative church leaders thought was a, a nuanced position to, to try to speak into that. And that's really the place that I grew up in, in, in a church. That was the lens that I had, is viewing all of these scriptures from a place that there's only certain roles that women can play, and men then are to be the pastors, they're to be the elders, they're to be on council. And this idea of patriarchy is kind of the river that I was swimming in. And so when I went to college, I began to be confronted with different positions from other Christians. See, if you had a different position, I would sort of look down on you as reading the scriptures incorrectly. Did you really value scripture? Because it seems so obvious. And this was my, you know, my naive 18-year-old self that, that had a lot of sort of ego and pride. And so in order to shift positions, you have to, one, dig into it because we don't come to scriptures alone. We don't come to scriptures by ourselves. We have the lenses that we bring, but we're also meant to unpack it 
to talk to others about it, to look at scholarship, right? To, to trust in the Holy Spirit, to help us as we journey through it. And so as I began to do that, God began to shift my heart, shift my mind as I understood more of what was happening there. Now, if you've grown up in community church, you haven't been in that system, right? At least in a church setting, maybe culturally you've come from that. You know, so my kids haven't grown up in a patriarchal system in the church. They've always assumed women can be pastors and maybe that's where you're at. But for me, it took this journey. And so a little bit of that, how did I get there is, is some of what we're gonna unpack today. Okay, so patriarchy or complementarianism is the belief that only men should hold positions of authority over men, okay? And this is also a view that impacts the home. There's this idea of headship, that the men are the leaders in the home. We're gonna talk a little bit about that one next week. What I wanna promote today to us and unpack what this means is biblical equality or egalitarianism. It says that there is no God-ordained hierarchy based solely on gender difference. And there's passages there that you can look up. So men and women can hold both positions, all positions of church leadership. Spouses are equally responsible for the family. Marriage is a partnership of two equals submitting to one another. Roles should be ability-based and not gender-based. So maleness or femaleness does not grant or prohibit one's ability to be used in God's kingdom or to glorify God in any dimension of ministry, mission, society, or family. It's a belief that the Holy Spirit does not give gifts based on our sexuality. So men and women are equally made in God's image. So we're starting with this creation part of the journey, equally made in God's image and likeness, equally fallen, equally redeemable, equal participants in the new covenant community, equally heirs of God in Christ, equally able to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. So we're going through this arc of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so this was the created intention of God. In Genesis, we see that we are created, male and female, to be created in the image of God to co-rule, co-rule. And this brings us to our um, first passage for today in Genesis 1. Now, we're going to be using the NRSV. Our translations matter. And when I usually when I study and I dig into the need for precise language, I use the NRSV. Um, there are languages, there are translations. All translations have a view, have a perspective. The ESV version, for instance, was created with the stated goal of affirming patriarchy. Um, so it's important to know why translations were made and, and the biases that they bring to the text. So Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness, and to let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air 
and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So both Adam and Eve are blessed. God said to both of them, be fruitful. To both of them, multiply. To both of them, to fill. To both of them, subdue. To both of them, to have dominion over it. So they're called to be co-rulers. This is God's intention for his creation. There's no indication that these activities of rulership and leadership are meant for men or women. He includes both in there. Moving on to Genesis 2, we see this verse, 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So what do you think this word helper means, right? The patriarchal view will, will, will talk about this word being an assistant, being subordinate. I mean, that's what I grew up with, thinking of this as a helper position. And yet, if we dig into the Hebrew, the Hebrew root is ezer here. And it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times, it refers to who? It refers to God. Two times to military help and one time to Eve. So God uses this word to describe himself, that he is our help in our time of need. It's these types of passages. God is the helper. So helper, Ezer, is not a subordinate position, okay? It's not an assistant. It's not a lower status. It's not a lower power. This is God's intended order, okay? We get to Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? Okay, the fall. And this is an important thing that I want to unpack briefly here in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, if you've been in Christianity for a while, that's not an unfamiliar story. I want to highlight a couple of things about this story, though. Eve was not there when God gave Adam the prohibition not to eat it, okay? So she has received this news most likely secondhand, probably from Adam. We don't know, but she doesn't get the prohibition right. She doesn't get the prohibition that God gave Adam, so we don't know if Adam gave it to her wrongly or she interpreted it wrongly. God just says, don't eat it. But Eve says, you're not to eat it or touch it. But Adam is right there with her and he does not correct her. Later, it says that Eve was deceived by the serpent. The serpent tricked Eve. It doesn't say Adam was deceived. And this is important as well. See, Eve was tricked into taking it. Okay, it wasn't right to do it, um, but she did it. Adam, on the other hand, his sin was willful. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was disobeying God. He got the order direct from God and sinned, okay? 
this is important as we think about how do we interpret what happened there, and it's important as we walk through this story. So now we see Genesis 3.16. We know that Adam and Eve have hid from God. God goes looking for them, and they are sent out of the garden. And part of what God says to them, your desire will be for your husband, this is to Eve, and he will rule over you. Okay, so it's not God's will for the wife to desire the husband. This is a result of the fall. You know, God wants her to respect her husband. We'll see this next week as we look at the New Testament. He will rule over you. Rule is to dominate or to put down. And again, we'll see in the New Testament that God's will for Adam is to love, not to dominate his wife. See, this verse is part of the fall. It's not God's intention. The Bible teaches that the rulership of Adam over Eve was a result of the fall and not part of the original creation order. See, Genesis 3 to 16 is a prediction of the effects of fall. It's not a prescription of God's ideal order. It's a description, not a prescription. Patriarchy was not what God wanted. Patriarchy was a result of human sin. And as with all the effects of sin in the world, they're not meant for us to be an excuse to live by. We're not meant to say, oh, well, the world's fallen, so I'm just going to continue to live in that state and promote my fallenness, right? See, in, in Genesis 3.15, the verse right before, God promised the serpent that Eve's descendant would crush the serpent's head. And Eve's descendant here is Jesus, right? Through Mary. We showed this a couple of series ago. This is pregnant Mary um, comforting Eve. And you can see Mary crushing the head of the serpent here. We see an undoing of the effects of the fall. We see that redemption arc that we um, get to be a part of in God's story. So how do we confront other areas of sin like pride, idolatry, these consequences of the fall, we confront them with God's grace, right? We battle against sin and its effects in the world, whatever those effects might be, whether it's greed, right? Or poverty or racism. We don't collude with them and we certainly don't promote them. So we see this redemption arc that we get to be a part of, but this redemption didn't just start with Christ. God is already redeeming in the Old Testament. So let's look at a few key passages in the Old Testament where God's redemption plan is already underway. We see the prophetess Miriam was sent by God to lead Israel. We see Deborah was one of the judges that the Lord raised up who saved Israel from the hands of their enemies. And she was a prophetess and she was the highest leader in all of Israel. We see God call Esther, Queen Esther to save the people. And she had sufficient influence to bring about the destruction of the house of Haman, along with 75,000 enemies of the Jews. We see the priest consulted the prophetess Hulda when they found a lost book of the law, they went to her to understand what it meant and they submitted to her spiritual leadership. See, 
Israel's male leadership went to her and submitted to that. And we see God using that to bring revival to Israel. Now, I, I begin to, um, you know, that this concept of patriarchy being a consequence of sin um, was sort of that moment for me that something clicked. I, I was like, what? I hadn't heard that concept before. Now, our church that I grew up in, we supported missionaries all over the world, and, and, and that was a good thing to do. But we would have these missionaries come and tell stories, and our church did not have female pastors, did not have females on the council. Um, so they were not teaching from the platform, and yet we had these missionaries who were talking about the teaching they were doing in their context, some of them women. And I was told, well, that's a special exception because um, you know, they don't have male believers there to, uh, to assume that authority. So we'll allow for those exceptions. And, and yet we see in scripture um, that there's no exception clauses given to these female leaders in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Okay, so that for me was like, wow, there's something here that I haven't been taught that does not resonate. So there is one position that we do not see female leadership in, in the Old Testament. And that's the role of priest. Now, the obvious reason for this was the priestesses and the other religions were, were cults, were prostitutes um, with cultic sexual rights. And so this was an area that um, Israel did not have female priests, but every other leadership position they did. And this is what I love to see God speaking that redemption, even into the reality that Israel was living in, in Isaiah 61, 6. It's a prediction of a future when all of God's people will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. And we see in the New Testament that God brought about the priesthood of all of his New Testament church in 1 Peter 2, 9. So we see even in the Old Testament, this redemption and restoration begin to take shape. Of course, leading to Jesus. Jesus and his interactions with women. In all the words and deeds, he, gave us, he gives us an example that women were treated as equals, the same as men, never subordinated or restricted in their role. And this was really countercultural. Um, you know, maybe egalitarianism seems uh, not so culturally difficult for us today, but in that culture, Jesus was really pushing against the culture, right? He, his treatment of women as equals defied both judicial, social, and the religious customs of his day. He was a maverick in this area. In a culture that frowned upon women being educated, Jesus encourages women to be disciples. We see this most notably in Luke, um, when Mary is at his feet listening. It's a posture and a position of a disciple. And Jesus affirmed her, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. Remember, Martha was preparing things and was working on the hospitality and it's not a ranking of one position over another, um, but Jesus affirms Mary's discipleship of him. See, Jesus teaching both men and women disciples implies that he wanted them, wanted women as well as men to be religious teachers. This was why you were a disciple. Now you may be asking, now why were none of the original 12 disciples women? Does that mean that women should be excluded from church leadership? No, simply choosing 12 apostles, 12 
free Jewish apostles at those original 12 does not exclude women from church leadership because we see that there are other um, apostles that are not free Jews, right? We see Gentiles and slaves were not excluded from church leadership. Two of the most influential um, disciples, apostles, were not a part of the original 12. James, the brother of Jesus, for one, and Paul. We're not among the original 12, but women like Junia were also apostles. So why did Jesus choose just the 12 as the original? One, I think it was to avoid scandal when he's with these 12, he, he's with them 24 seven. They're sleeping in the same place. They're in dark places, you know, together all night. And that would have been scandalous uh, to, to be with women in those settings. The other thing is symbolic. These 12 disciples were representations of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a restoration of those tribes to now to become the church, not just the church to Israel, but the church to the whole world. So how does this work in Jesus's ministry? Um, other than the ways I've already said, one, the first Christian missionary was a Samaritan woman. We get this story um, from John and she goes and tells and proclaims the good news and many came to follow Jesus. We also see that Mary Magdalene was the first person to uh, Jesus encounters upon his resurrection and he sends her out as really the first apostle to proclaim the news to the other disciples. So we also see not just in Jesus, but also in Paul, that Paul affirms women in all levels of ministry. If we look at Romans 16 verses one to 16, we we see that Paul greets by name, 10 people, and he identifies as colleagues in Christian ministry, seven of them are women. Again, Paul was um, pushing against cultural norms in that time and was quite progressive for his time. We see that Phoebe was a deacon of the church and a leader of many, including Paul. We see that Junia was outstanding among the apostles. We see that Prisca, he says, is my fellow coworker in Christ Jesus. And we see Mary and Trophina and Tryphosa and Persis all worked hard in the Lord. So Paul was definitely a promoter of women in ministry. We also see in Acts, Tabitha is named as a disciple, Acts 9-11. We see Priscilla is a teacher and a house church leader, Acts 18. And Priscilla herself was actually teaching men. She was teaching Apollos, not just teaching Apollos, she was correcting Apollos because he had gotten the gospel a bit wrong. So we see clearly in the early church that women were house church leaders, apostles, deacons. Now, house churches were the only types of church. They weren't sort of a a lower form of church. It was leaders in the church, deacons and fellow workers in the Lord. They were functioning at every level of church leadership. Finally, our our last passage for today, Galatians 3, 28. There was no longer Jew or Greek. There was no longer slave or free. There was no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. See, our views on this matter because it impacts people. This is why we're teaching on this. How how do we as a church um, address and confront and dig into issues like this? There's... 
many hot button issues, right? And how do we do that? And this is part of why I'm wanting to do this is to show how do we dig into this? We dig into it. We dig into scripture. We dig into our theology because this impacts our vision itself of love God, love people, love doing good. Jesus said, you know, love God. That's the first commandment. And the second is to love people, love people as your neighbors. Paul tells us in Romans 13, 10, that love does no harm to its neighbor. This is why our theology matters. Love does no harm to its neighbor. So if your theology is harming your neighbor, then your theology is wrong, friends. And in order for us to enter into it, it requires humility. It requires an ability um, to walk with this, to say, I might be wrong, and to come to these scriptures and to dig as you have questions, look for answers. And we wanna invite you to that conversation. One of our core values is, is inclusive and we've been walking through having people share on these values in our community and we're gonna do that today. Um, this is our value of inclusive. We believe that the value of image of God in all people, which is core at our position on why we have women in all levels of leadership, that everyone matters. We embrace our diversity as we walk in unity and seeking to be a community that is loving, welcoming, and inclusive to everyone. Let's pray before we hear two testimonies today. God, I thank you that you are a God that loves and calls us to the same, that you have called us into community where we can wrestle with these things, where we can dig in, God. We thank you that you are a God that journeys with us, that you are a God that is trustworthy. So continue to renew our minds, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.